Welcome to Tyranny Today. We are now in February, just a couple of hours from the year of the dragon. But since it's February, let me remind you again that we are approaching the second anniversary of Russia's criminal invasion of what used to be, at least since the Black Death in late Middle Ages, Europe's breadbasket. Ukraine's black earth soil used to feed much of Europe, and uh, you find a reflection of that reality in the national colors that juxtapose the sky blue with the gold of the fields of wheat. Giving this sad anniversary that is approaching, I think it's a good moment to consider a donation, and as I mentioned before, one such outlet is called Come Back Alive, or Ukrainian Povierizhivim. It's under savelife.in.ua. Save life in one word, dot in dot ua. All right, let's come back to the new world for a moment. As you may know, we have a problem at the border here, and it's not really a Texan problem, it's a conceptual problem. I have a personal issue with this because we are far away from the 1990s when in Davos one Italian participant quipped, what is the point of walls and fences when we live in the era of windows and gates? But I have the misfortune of having a memory that goes back quite a bit further than 1990s. The first border I saw was marked by a high wall with the barbed wire on top and watchtowers positioned every 500 meters. On each side of the wall there was a sand belt, peppered with landmines. And on the outside of the sand belt, military patrols would stroll with touchy, twitchy, excitable German shepherds. That was a border I knew, the border of the USSR. Then for decades I didn't see anything remotely as dystopian until I flew to the Sino-Russian border in the Far East, and I found the same belts of well-tended no-man's land. Niemandsland, as Pesekzein de Fia once sang. I was begged not to sing on this podcast, so I will refrain this time. No, I can't resist. The song went like this. Brückenkopf in Niemandsland. Und ich dachte an meine Hand. Alle Tiere sind verbrannt. Brückenkopf in Niemandsland the great Rolf Vehovsky from Frankfurt and his Pesek Saint de Fier, ladies and gentlemen. No, I do not think he'll perform at the Super Bowl this year, but who knows, maybe next year. Now, I was not in a singing mood the other day after sharing a dinner and a drink with a trumpist. Yes, my dear listeners, only a couple of weeks since I suffered through a perfectly naive evening with some irredeemably progressive leftists, I ventured onto the other side of the social media divide. And what I discovered was a very, very dark place. You know that your interlocutor has now spent a long time under the influence of digital opiates when the conversation starts about George Soros's allegedly murky schemes. The right wing is absurdly obsessed with Soros for only one reason. It is that their media have been hopelessly infiltrated by pro-Russian propaganda. If Soros and his Open Society Foundation ever presented any threat to anyone, it was mostly the Eastern European and Central Asian autocrats, not Americans. People like Putin and Orban loathed this germinating mindbug that Soros's pro-democracy initiatives represented. So they painted Soros as some kind of Wizard of Oz, responsible for all the woke woes, allegedly also in our part of the world. 
This really smacks of the 1880s conspiracy theory about the omnipotent Rothschild Bank, an obsession that preceded the flourishing of a very ugly form of European ultranationalism. Ugly because only obliquely anti-Semitic. You know, those globalists, right? They're doing it to us. The second theme that my interlocutor came up with was also blatantly pro-Moscow. It goes like this. We have nothing to do with Ukraine. Let's just have Slavs slug it out among themselves. It's not our fight. Now, we know where Trump and his supporters in Congress got it from. Disengagement, isolationism, indifference for human suffering. There is an interesting theory of Americanism purportedly supporting this view. It goes like this. We Americans all came here from somewhere to escape the mess in other places, so... Why do we have to constantly get involved in other people's mess? Of course, now we're in this line of thinking, there is a single thought devoted to unchecked nuclear proliferation that would result from America's withdrawal. There is not a single thought spurred for the role of the US dollar and the flows of capital with access to global markets. Not through anal accumulation a la chinoise, but with the freedom to generate returns on capital. No, that will not cross the mind of those supposedly libertarian partisans of global disengagement. Nor is there much thought spared for the fact that by relinquishing the partial control of the flows, we give away not only geographies, but also norm-building initiative, and these are norms that are very different from ours. It could mean that he and I would not be able to have this kind of free conversation in a public place anymore. Because guess what? Unlike my interlocutor, I actually still remember a world that functioned like that. Another Russian-derived soundbite from my dinner company was, quote-unquote, the diktat of the American military-industrial complex that drives us all into those wars that Democrats want so badly. Well, mind you, he's not concerned about the Chinese military-industrial complex or Russian military-industrial complex. It's the U.S. military that is at thought here, and it's complex. Not very patriotic, but here we go. And if Democrats are really so beholden to the so-called military-industrial complex, then why did Jake Sullivan leave General Zaluzhny hanging in the late summer of 2022 when Ukrainian forces had a real chance to continue their Kherson offensive all the way to the Azov Sea? Well, it didn't happen because the Democratic administration was scared of Moscow's escalatory rhetoric. They chickened out, allowing Russians to organize a mobilization and build Suroviking Line, a kind of Maginot Line that Ukrainians have since found impossible to break through. Then my interlocutor accused Democrats of loving Iran so much, uh, which is an interesting buzzword because this one clearly is based on electoral calculus. And a simple answer to this is, why do you Trumpists love Russia so much? But I didn't go there because it is more interesting to be in a listening mode and learn more. If I wasn't in a listening mode, then I could enumerate multiple contradictions that never cease to resurface in that isolationist echo chamber. That their orange idol was actually lionized by the extreme leftist wing for abandoning the multilateral trade agreements with East Asia, that is the CPTPP, Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, and with Europe, the TITP, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. So why do you complain about the left? I could also point out that their support for state action on the country's border goes against the Supreme Court's ruling that restated that the federal border is the remit of federal authorities. In other words, the actions of certain states are anti-constitutional 
and so much for the alleged respect for the Constitution. I could also highlight their very predictable war on Trumpian attacks on NAFTA, which of course was Clinton's and Democrats' fault, but which are completely spurious because without the cross-border connectivity with Mexican labor, we would have gotten a lot more Mexican immigrants into this country and would have lost a lot more of jobs to China. And then I could raise the point that abandoning Inflation Reduction Act among the Trumpian hatred of anything that smacks of new energy technology will strengthen further Chinese dominance of this space, undermining the jobs already created by all the gigafactory investments, guess where, in the red states. That's the sad thing about minds hijacked by conspiracy theories that populate social media. Once you're there, everything fits your confirmation bias, one of the most pervasive cognitive distortions that our minds fall prey to. Everything is simple, warmly familiar, and everything has a quick solution. If only I could push the lever. I will solve the war in Ukraine in one day. Really? And of course, on day one, Mexico will pay for the wall, right? Having read the report by the Marathon Initiative regarding the deprioritization of America's global involvement, I do realize that the broader MAGA camp has now been infiltrated by much healthier, strategically-minded experts, including such luminaries as Elbridge Colby, Wes Mitchell, or Jakub Grigel. However, the question remains whether the orange-painted prospective GOP nominee will really have any time for the traditional Republican strategic establishment. I therefore find it alarming that all of Vladimir Putin's talking points are so readily parroted by people who claim to be American patriots, but whose primary adopted identity is to spit on the other side of the domestic political divide. This is very much in the interest of our enemies in Moscow or Beijing. But I don't think Ted Nugent gets it, and nor do I aspire to share a dinner with the former leader of Amboy Jukes. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go. Okay, let's change gears. Uh, China of 2024 is showing symptoms of being the USSR of the late 1960s, weakening internally, but very strong externally. Just like the USSR of yesteryear, today's PRC has rendered dozens of countries dependent on its largesse and disciplined them to toe the anti-American line, including in the key regions for the security of the United States, such as the Pacific and Latin America. On the other hand, the stresses within the Chinese economy have become increasingly dramatic. The garroting of Hong Kong has turned what once used to be East Asia's most vibrant, exciting city into a parody of northern Chinese despotism. This had long been brewing, but broke into the open with the spread of COVID exactly four years ago. Nower is it more glaring than in comparison of the performance of the Hong Kong equity market with the Taiwanese stock market. The Hong Kong market shackled by China's security laws, has returned a negative 25% over the last four years. Meanwhile, under the stewardship of President Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese stock market has rocked, returning 112% over this period. There are a few more striking examples of the price of unfreedom. China and the other members of Eurasia's red team, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, are collectively and separately focused on conflict, even though... Too many Western nations still believe that we are in the era of competition. There is a radical difference between the two approaches, however. In a competition, competitors agree on the rules of the game. Marathon runners do not push aside fellow runners, and pole vault athletes do not saw their competitors' poles. 
But that's exactly what you do in a conflict. For all the Christian chivalry that prevailed in the Middle Ages and the return of collective guilt over the plight of belligerents and civilians, which marked the development of the rules of conflict since the second half of the 19th century, the fact is that aggressive states that thrive on conflict do not abide by any rules. Who, in this day and age, declares war? It's not a war, but a special operation, an act of self-defense, or a reunification with a renegade province. In such a conflict, all tricks are kosher, anything goes, and if there is an overarching goal, then the ends will justify the means. The pecking order in the red team means that this overarching goal is defined first and foremost by the Chinese Communist Party. This goal is to displace the United States from the Western Pacific. Chinese strategists realize that their strength cannot quite match American results, especially when it's supported by Japanese forces and Filipino bases. And so the strategy consists in drawing the United States into peripheral, from China's perspective, conflicts, away from the Western Pacific theater. This is how the theory of three wars has been proposed by some Chinese jingoists. It identified three geopolitical fractures that do not directly involve Chinese forces, but potentially draw American forces and several kinetic flare-ups. The first region where China does not have direct interest is Eastern Europe. China's imperial tradition does not consider small nations as having separate agency, and Eastern Europe, from Finland in the north to Greece in the south, is full of small states. Beijing suffered a strategic defeat in this region with the collapse of China's plans of the so-called 17 plus 1 initiative, where, similarly to Africa, China collected a number of partners on an allegedly multi-bilateral basis. Allegedly because, as the name of the initiative indicates, this was a radial arrangement, bringing together a number of entities vying for the attention of the empire, which in turn accorded various privileges to its vassals on a bilateral basis. This failed in Eastern Europe because too many of these nations, starting with the Baltic countries, still have a fresh memory of vassaldom. And so the degree of relative success of the Chinese initiative differed depending whether it was directed at states that emerged from the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, or of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, or of the Soviet Empire, with the smallest pickings in the latter basket. While never admitting the failure of its policy and certainly surprised to discover that small nations do, in fact, have their own agency and their own strategy, Beijing eventually defaulted to Moscow's reading of the region and Russia's concept of indivisible security that China really incorporated into its own security dogma. There is this misconception I often find among Western analysts, some of whom believe that Russian neo-imperial disease was magically caught when Putin took power between 1998 and 2000 or even later, when he pivoted from his allegedly pro-democratic course to become a hardline autocrat. Whatever the internal shifts and shades in his power grab over a quarter of a century long rule, Russia's uh, position vis-à-vis -vis its self-defined near border was never radically reformulated, not even during the relatively peaceful 1990s. In fact, as the First Chechnyan War and the tragedy of Yugoslavia played out during that decade, Russians remained strongly invested emotionally in the outcome of on the periphery of their historical zones of influence. It's a zone of influence thinking that never truly disappeared. As early as 1993, Andrei Kuziryev, an allegedly liberal member of the Russian elite, stated that Russia must preserve its interest in the former Soviet Empire. And by the time Evgeny Primakov became the foreign minister, the country was fully on a path to undermine the sovereignty of its formerly Soviet neighbors. 
This is when the dogma of NATO encroachment was adopted with oft-repeated myths regarding some discussions that Hans-Dietrich Genscher, the long-serving foreign minister of West Germany, allegedly held with Gorbachev's team regarding the price of Germany's reunification and the supposedly verbal, though never documented, promise by the collective West never to allow third countries to join NATO. So where is China in all this? It's in the No Limits Partnership, which Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin celebrated several days before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Beijing simply signed up to Putin's version of anti-Americanism, best formulated in December of 2021 by his foreign minister Lavrov, who reiterated Moscow's pretensions to roll back third countries' NATO membership. Countries such as Estonia, Poland, Latvia, Romania or Lithuania, thus pushing against NATO and Europe in the interest of Russia. That became one of the dogmas of Chinese three-war scheme. You will hardly detect it on surface because Chinese statements to this effect are much more oblique than the more straightforward statements by Russia. For example, last week, following the first meeting between the new Chinese Minister of Defense, uh, Dong Jun, and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Shoigu, the official statements from the encounter read very differently. The Chinese readout is deeply apocryphic, making statements about uh, elevating the partnership between the two countries to a higher level. Now, this does not mean anything, because sky is the limit, and as we know, the emperor has the mandate of heaven. There are therefore many, 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 many more levels to elevate the relationship. But the Russian readout was much more concrete and underlined Chinese support for Russia and Russia's support for China over Taiwan. It also spelled out what Russians want to hear most, that China will not be swayed in its pro-Russian no-limits partnership by European or American pressure or sanctions. So we learn a lot more by learning Russian than by deciphering Chinese, and luckily so. I strongly recommend that you learn both, however. Many Western analysts pinpoint the asymmetry in the relationship between the economically weakened Russia and the Chinese juggernaut. In this relationship, Russia needs China more than China needs Russia, and therefore the Chinese will one day exploit Moscow. Well, maybe one day, but not now. If Beijing keeps an eye on the ultimate prize that is pushing the United States beyond the first island chain in the Western Pacific, then the relationship with Moscow is of critical importance, and not only because Beijing does not have to worry about its continental northern border. The undeniable asymmetry between the two partners does not mean that the relationship is not beneficial to both sides. Russia may derive more value from it in the short term, but it's China that calls the shots, and both partners need each other. Russia to conduct its multi-pronged aggression against Europe, and China supporting Russia to weaken its Western adversaries and gain control over the Pacific, arguably the economic heartbeat of the world. So this is why China and Russia have returned to a relationship that existed between them since the Treaty of Nerchinsk in 1689, all the way until the Unequal Treaties some 200 years later, when it was um, Qing China that remained the dominant partner in relations with Tsarist Russia. It was also during this era that Russia barged into the Western European scene, first by beating Sweden and then gaining the seat around the table following the Napoleonic Wars, a role that Moscow is now dreaming of regaining. So, this is the first of the three wars that benefit Beijing in its quest for Pacific dominance. What is the second war? Well, of course, is the war in the Middle East. There are two aspects of the conflict that China would like to leverage. One is to draw America into a protracted conflict, 
although not necessarily into a full-blown war with Iran, which would put huge pressure on fossil fuel prices, derailing China's weak economy. The second aspect concerns the role of the dollar in both pricing and settlement of oil trade with Middle Eastern partners. In the first aspect, Iran is Beijing's key partner, and the second one is Saudi Arabia. Hence, China's efforts in early 2023 to bring the two countries closer. For China, Iran plays a role that is similar to what Russia does in Europe, that is, as a key destabilizer. There are some differences between Russia and Europe and Iran in the Middle East. The most important is that Iran is already a status quo power in the region, not an aspiring member of the regional concert of powers. Iran achieved this position thanks to the evil genius of Qasem Soleimani, who craftily decided to concentrate Iran's offensive capabilities in the hands of outlying proxies, first in Lebanon, later in Iraq, then in Yemen, and finally in Syria. This forward defense is called, in Farsi, Jang al-Khair al All of these lands at some point in history, in fact, belonged to Persia, including Yemen, which is not geographically contiguous, but which during the Sasanian Empire, early in the first millennium, was controlled by Persia. But paradoxically, a status quo power maintains the status quo by brinkmanship, by keeping its enemies, starting with Israel and Saudi Arabia, off balance. A third power that counts in the region, that is Turkey, has a fraught history with Iran, and the two eye each other in a kind of a love and hate relationship that never really led to a partnership of the sorts that Russia has repeatedly built with Germany in the course of European history. Iran is therefore this master puppeteer, acting from inside a deep fog of deniability, using the proxies as a shield, but also prodding them when necessary to raise the temperature. Hezbollah is the jewel in the crown, checkmating Israel from the north. The Houthis are a nuisance, and a multitude of Shiite and Shiite-friendly groupings across the Mashrak play a role of irritants. Their capacity is sufficient to awaken the United States into action. But what action? There is no easy way to retaliate against Iran. Pinprick bombing is complicated because Iran had decades to prepare for it and its nuclear program is deeply hitting underground. It will become even more complicated when Iran, in exchange for its cheap but deadly Shahid drones, will receive Su-35 jet fighters from Russia, which will radically change the balance of air power in the region. So how about an invasion of Iran? Well, just look at the map. Any expeditionary force would have to gain a beachhead first before facing a trek across the Zagros Mountains. Not a simple ride as across the desert in Iraq. I've been to Zagros Mountains. This is a formidable terrain, not a place that Americans in particular, fresh from their experience in Afghanistan, should infiltrate themselves with confidence. Not to mention that the public opinion in the US would be deeply, deeply divided over any prospect of American lives lost in Persia. One way to induce America to act on Iran is by linking Tehran to Al-Qassam Brigade's um, attack on Israel last October. But Iran was actually completely wrong-footed by Hamas. Even worse, Tehran, which is usually in the driving seat, took umbrage for not being consulted. In fact, the timing was deeply detrimental to Tehran's calculations. Some $6 billion worth of funds were about to be released by the United States in return for a prisoner exchange at that time. But following the Al-Qassam Brigade's attack on Israel, this was blocked. There was a hint of irritation at Hamas in public comments by Iranian leaders, and then came the famous disengagement by Hassan Nasrallah in his public statement some four weeks into the war in Gaza. But as a status quo power across its arc of influence, Tehran has adroitly turned the upheaval to its advantage. 
For those who remember the long-term consequences of Bush's war in Iraq, we can only repeat, yet again, Tehran won. And yet, there are many in the region and beyond who just couldn't get enough egging Americans to attack Iran proper. Yes, the retaliation against, say, Hasht al-Shabi in Iraq is difficult, but an escalation of the conflict to Iran is what lies in the interest of many Sunni extremists in Syria and Iraq, including ISIS, in the interest of the Saudis, if anything because of the resulting dislocation in the oil prices, and certainly in the interest of some extreme right-wing elements in Israel. And yet, it's not these regional interests that truly matter. Both Putin and Xi Jinping want America to get mired in the Middle Eastern sands. Why is this in the interest of China? Well, China is a free rider when it comes to security in the region. Red Sea is the highway for Chinese experts to Europe, and yet it's the US Navy that is using my taxes to try to defend this trade route. However, it's a different virtual front line that China has established in the region, and from that perspective, America's entanglement is very much in Beijing's interest. What is this front line? It's the dollar. Is the Iranian regime sufficiently lucid to see through China's game? Nothing would make Beijing happier than to see its potential Middle Eastern client clinch with the US, damaging what's left of the credibility of the United States in the region. The leftover of this credibility is not some missile directed at the Houthis, is the US dollar. This inevitably brings us to America's former ally, the ever-ungrateful Saudi Arabia. The Middle East currencies are pegged to the US dollar, including Saudi Arabia's, the United Arab Emirates, Oman's, and Qatar's. Kuwait's currency is pegged to a basket of currencies, which is also dominated by the dollar. Since 1986, the Saudi Rial has been pegged at a fixed rate of 3.75 to the greenback. And of course, these pegs acted as a stability anchor for these countries when the US was the world's largest oil importer. China knows that this system is a leftover from the time when America was the biggest customer, but maintaining these currency pegs requires steady flow of US dollars. Now, if America hardly buys any of this oil, then the dollars have to come from those importers who just can't print the greenback. And today, it is China, the Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner, with a bilateral trade worth over $80 billion. Chinese exports to Saudi Arabia reached $38 billion, while China's imports from the kingdom totaled some $48 billion. But China wants more. Russia, Iran, Venezuela, and Indonesia are already settling some of their oil trades with China and renminbi. Russia's fourth-largest oil producer, Gazprom Neft, has been settling all of its crude oil sales with China in renminbi since 2015, almost 10 years. And Russia adopted China's SIPS, which is cross-border interbank payment system, a clearing and settlement system for trading oil, thus bypassing SWIFT. Just to compare, this Chinese SIPS processes about $14 trillion of transactions a year, which is roughly one-tenth of SWIFT's. Note that none of these countries that use renminbi for all business are members of the GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council. Beijing has been at pains trying to de-dollarize the bilateral trade with the GCC countries, but given that the Saudis have always enjoyed a current account surplus with China, it wasn't very obvious what they could do with all those accumulated renminbi. So what exactly would it mean that renminbi dethrones the dollar in the Middle Eastern petro trade? Well, first it could mean pricing of oil in the Chinese currency. For this, the appetite among OPEC producers is almost nil. Why is that? Because of China's anal approach to commodity volatility. 
Middle Eastern national oil companies closely watch how Beijing tries to manipulate local commodity prices such as iron ore, cotton, coal, grains, or more recently critical minerals. And it does it every time prices rise above a pain threshold. Why would Middle East nations cede their pricing power to China? In fact, China's attempts at manipulating the oil price are a sorry story of impotence. China originally launched its crude uh, oil futures contract to a great fanfare on the Shanghai International Energy Exchange back in March of 2018. This technically enabled any oil producers in the world to sell their oil in the Chinese currency, thus giving birth to the craved petro-yuan. But most oil producers didn't want to accumulate a large yuan reserve. That's why the exchange explicitly linked the crude futures contract with the ability to convert yuan into physical gold. But not the gold sitting in the reserves held at the Chinese central bank. No, only through gold traded at the exchanges in Shanghai and Hong Kong. So all this is bogus, because China does not have enough gold to back all of its currency. The country's economy is already in deflation, despite a massive expansion of monetary base from $7 trillion before COVID to about $11 trillion now. So now imagine what would happen if it pegged this currency to gold. Good luck with that. So after this failure, rather than pricing oil in yuan, Xi Jinping, during his failed trip to Saudi Arabia in late 2022, asked Middle Eastern producers to accept payments in yuan. Saudi Finance Minister Mohammed Al-Jatan replied later politely that there are no issues uh, with discussing how we settle our trade arrangements, whether it's in US dollars, whether it's in euro, whether it's in Saudi real, verbatim. And then Tanya Al-Zayudi, the Emirati trade minister, said, his country was prepared to discuss settling trade in different currencies, but only for non-oil deals. As you can imagine, Beijing wasn't happy with these answers. By switching some of the imports away from Saudi Arabia to Russia last year and reducing its current account deficit with Saudi Arabia, Beijing has signaled to Riyadh that it's not happy about the continued dollarization of the bilateral oil trade. So last year, around the time of Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow, the Saudi government caved in, announcing that it will start invoicing some oil experts to China in renminbi. Now, this is still far from making petro-yuan a reality. The only new petro-currency to emerge of late has been the dirham of the United Arab Emirates. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, India has been using it to settle some oil transactions with Russia, bypassing the U.S. sanctions. But for the past 25 years, the dirham has been packed to the U.S. dollar, so we back to square one. The reason why the dollar pegged dirham has been used more in the Russia-India trade is because Russia almost choked on Indian rupees. Last year, Moscow accumulated an annual rupee surplus of over 40 billion, which it earned from its exports of cheap coal and oil to India. But then Moscow found that such rupee accumulation was, in official parlance, not desirable. Since India didn't have to earn any hard currency to purchase energy flows from Russia, it gave a boost to the Indian economy and flooded Russia with an unusable currency asset. Just have a look at India's stock market. It's been stratospheric. So all this to say that while China may be quite successful, just letting Iranian proxies needle America, it has found its leverage as a petro customer rather limited. Although China is Saudi Arabia's largest oil customer, taking roughly 26% of its oil exports, the combination of Japan and South Korea surpasses that share, reaching 28%. And if you add to this Taiwan, then the three countries account for nearly one-third of Saudi petroleum exports. 
It's probably even more now than how that China boosted its imports from Russia. All of these other countries continue to pay in dollars and will continue to do so for obvious reasons. And as I mentioned last week in my sequel on Beijing's energy security, growth in China's gasoline demand has already probably peaked. As a gambit against dollar dominance, uh, Beijing's scheme may be even backfiring. In the past, the Saudis didn't have to use all those petrodollars they earned from experts, so each time oil prices rose, they would exchange more of their greenback earnings into other currencies, such as euro, for example, thus weakening the dollar. My personal view is that China's push to de-dollarize Middle Eastern current account petro surplus actually strengthens the dollar because there is less need to sell those earned dollars, and thus there will be less pressure on the dollar each time oil prices rise. And I think we have begun to observe it already since last year, and again in the last couple of days. And so the dollar, for now, is there to stay. A reserve currency, by definition, has to be backed by a deficit country, which has been America's role in the global economy since the 1970s. Usually the U.S. role is one of um, balancing out what the rest of the world is doing. Till the 1970s, the post-war developed world needed savings, so U.S. ran a surplus. But once the developed world was rebuilt and needed to park its uh, excess savings somewhere, then the U.S. ran permanent deficits. And since many economies run current account surpluses, they have to buy foreign assets. And the U.S. is the only economy willing to generate such deficits. So it's not that easy for others to step into this role because it means relinquishing control over the international currency flows. China's economy is very export-dependent, so fluctuations in renminbi could prove very painful. By comparison, the U.S. economy is not overly dependent on experts and can afford playing this role. China would not be able to run a current account surplus if it had a reserve currency, so it can't liberalize its capital account. So, in foreseeable future, China will continue to run its dual currency system with the onshore yuan used for domestic transactions and the offshore CNH yuan in Hong Kong for overseas transactions. And it's probably too late to even tinker around with the system, because with a debt overhang of over 300% to GDP and a sign of capital liberalization would risk a debt currency crisis. Okay, so the Middle East represents the second war for China. Now, what about the third peripheral war? Well, that is, of course, Korea. North Korea has been clearly emboldened since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first high-profile kinetic conflict between the East and the West since the Soviet war in Afghanistan opened a lot of diplomatic space for Pyongyang, and Kim Jong-un didn't waste his time to exploit it. Already in November of 2022, Pyongyang shipped weapons to Wagner Group in Russia. It has since tested its first ICBM that flew over Japan. It also successfully tested solid fuel in its Hwasong-18 missiles, thus reducing the reaction time that its adversaries would have in a case of preparations for a nuclear attack. And it has become a supplier of choice of munitions to Moscow, whether it's 122mm, 130 or 152mm. After all, it's a country with 100 ammunition factories, more than any other country per population on this planet. But North Korea does need to upgrade its conventional forces, and whether Russia pays for the lifeline with submarine technology or with S-400 air defense systems is not yet known. Maybe it's missiles, or satellites, or maybe guidance equipment, anything that could distract the US and its South Korean ally. Of course, the worst thing that could happen would be with North Koreans gaining a viable SLBM capacity submarine-launched ballistic missiles. 
That would mean that the country gains the second strike capability and would be much more of a deterrence than the ICBMs it has right now. And if that is really happening, it's on Russian dime. North Korea neatly closes the loop on the Red Team's cooperation network. Pyongyang has in the past supported Hamas, and before that the PLO. We know that North Korean weapons traveled to Hamas via Iran and Syria. And post-October 7th, South Korea also realizes that Iron Dome can be overwhelmed. North Koreans, just like Iranians, are harvesting huge intelligence scoops from the kinetic conflicts in the Middle East and especially in Ukraine. They learn about drone use in Ukraine, about landmines, high-intensity ammo use, and about signal intelligence. If North Korea and Iran can resort to using Russian satellites, then the precision of their guided missiles will improve exponentially. Even a Stalinist regime must rely on at least two engines for action. One is capacity, and the other one is the will to act. As just mentioned, there is no shortage of capacity in Pyongyang. But what about the will? North Korea's increasingly aggressive posture vis-à-vis Seoul has a lot to do with the normalized relations between South Korea and Japan, probably America's biggest diplomatic success in 2023. And you may ask, well, what does it all have to do with China? Well, North Korea is China's only treaty ally. In Article 2 of their security treaty, the two communist regimes commit to jointly prevent an attack on the other state. This, of course, puts uh, South Korea on high alert in case of a Taiwan contingency. But isn't this also working the other way around? If the Chinese three-war theory has any validity, then it works not by the virtue of People's Liberation Army's direct involvement, but rather via a proxy that drains America's resources. Remember the 36 stratagems I mentioned last week? Well, stratagem number 9 says, Watch the fire burn from across the river. Or as we say in German, Is North Korea's newfound intimacy uh, with their Russian brethren a problem for Beijing? In an asymmetric alliance, it could mean entrapment for the stronger partner. Except that, says who, that Beijing would ever honor Article 2 of its security treaty with Pyongyang. After all, North Koreans are not devoid of agency either. Just think how masterfully the dictator's granddaddy, Kim Il-sung, played Moscow against Mao Zedong, and then back again. But just as the balance of power between China and Russia remains on the side of China, for as long as Russia is mired in the Ukrainian mudlands, the balance of power between North Korea and China is much less obvious than what can be gleaned from just glancing at the map. China badly needs North Korea if anything, to keep American troops away from its border and also to employ it as a loose cannon, always ready to destabilize South Korea and Japan. Yes, North Korea needs Beijing as well, if anything, for inbound investment, but Pyongyang has long diversified away from this source of funding. Most of its revenue comes from computer hacking, especially stealing crypto funds, where North Korea raked in several billion dollars since 2019. Weapon sales on the black market is another good source of revenue, with some Middle Eastern groups as uh, beneficiaries, as mentioned before. North Korean missile technology is also proliferating across Asia. Pyongyang also earns funds from drug smuggling, and also from exporting of um, slave labor, or let's call it indentured workers, some 2.6 million of which uh, slave themselves away in the vast expenses of China and Russia, especially now that Russia needs male labor so much. Ah, and I would have forgotten. Sculptures. You may be like, what? Yes, monumental sculptures. North Korea earns millions of dollars by selling sculptures. Just Google it. 
There are several massive socio-realist behemoths that North Korean, let's call them artists, built for strongmen around Africa. They're apparently made at Mansube Art Studio. I remember a shock once upon my return to Dakar in Senegal after a three-year absence. When on approach to the airport, I enjoyed the familiar landscape uh, over a sunset until I was hit with this eyesore, a massive towering blot. I later learned that it was African Renaissance monument, almost perfectly lifted from some Hitlerian or Stalinist model. Uh, do you know the emblem of Soviet-era Mosfilm state-owned movie production studio? Well, it's a bit like that, although supposedly African. I've seen some other North Korean statues around Africa, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Namibia, in Mozambique, and in Botswana, but none was as monumental as that one in Senegal. And that's probably as much as I know about North Korean art. So, this is it, China's three-war theory. It was presented last year by a Chinese nationalist commentator named Long Kaifeng. He concluded his remarks with the following statement. We know very well that abolishing the island chain in the Pacific, the abolishing of NATO in Europe, and the abolishing of dollar hegemony in the Middle East are one and the same. As to how prioritize them, it depends on the situation on the battlefield. If NATO's is dismantled, wouldn't be easy to neutralize the island chain strategy. And if dollar's reign ends, how long can the US hold on? So, these are the thoughts of Long Kaifeng. It sounds a bit like a little ping, Xiao Feng Hong, a troll. Why so? Because it's no different from the thinking process of a Trumpist, such as the one I quoted at the beginning of this podcast. In fact, every time you hear someone say that everything is connected, it all goes back to X, or it all makes sense, all this spurious coherence that makes your mind feel so comfortable, then you know it's all wrong. Nothing ever dovetails so perfectly and we should do our best to widen the gaps of interest among the four allies of the Red Team and to undermine the social peace in each of those regimes. In Iran, an opportunity may present itself soon with the imminent physical demise of Ayatollah Khamenei and the inevitable succession struggle at the top. The slow destruction of Chinese financial market, which lost $6 trillion in just four years, is an example how our liberal commitment to flows plays to our advantage in this case. And we should continue to drain the Russian war machine, in which context Georgia Meloni's and Donald Tusk's pressure on Hungarian dictator last week marked a significant victory for the free world. Though we don't know exactly what happened behind the closed door. Alright, I'll leave you this time for two weeks, with enough time to munch on the Chinese fear of three wars and on the absurdity of right-wing media's Putinism. But before I go, I strongly encourage you to follow the events in Burma one of my favorite places in Southeast Asia, which I discovered back in the mid-90s, and which is unfortunately traversing a brutal civil war. What's different about this chapter of violence is that ethnic minorities, which were always armed, have welcomed ethnic Burmese urban opposition, who turned against the junta and then, then trade the urbanites to fight. As I signaled before in this podcast, Burma is an appendage of the Red Team. We know from Ukraine that Burmese ammunition is now used by Russians. And until the invasion of Ukraine, Russia was the main supplier of weaponry to the junta. The country's dictator, Min Aung Liang, even received an honorary PhD at the Military University of the Defense Ministry of the Russian Federation, believe it or not. Despite these honors, with a bit of luck, the military junta could yet collapse in the year of the dragon, which is upon us in just four days. So, Long Nian Taji, Happy New Year of the Dragon.
It happens to be my year, so let's hope for plenty of good things for all my dear listeners. Let's meet again in two weeks from now.